We are studying the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings, and today we begin a new chapter. And if you'd like a sermon outline or borrow a Bible, raise your hand, our ushers will be happy to help you. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, we're going to follow Jesus, who is brought before Pontius Pilate to answer the charges the Jewish Sanhedrin is bringing against him. And for the first time in the Gospel, Jesus isn't standing before the religious powers and authorities. He will stand before the secular political power and authorities. As we've read before, the Jewish authorities have already tried, convicted, and sentenced Jesus to death for the crime of blasphemy. But under Roman rule, the Jews didn't have the power to legally put someone to death. Only Rome could authorize the death penalty. So the Jewish Sanhedrin brings Jesus to be tried before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in Judea. The emperor... Tiberius appointed Pontius Pilate the governor of Judea in 26 AD, and he ruled there for 10 years. And if you've done any reading about Pilate, those who wrote about him described him as a harsh administrator who despised the Jewish people. That's who he's going to face. The Sanhedrin knows Rome will not sentence a man to death for the charge of blasphemy. That, was, that wasn't a crime in Rome. For Rome to condemn Jesus, they had to bring charge of high treason against Rome. uh, And that became their strategy as they brought him before Pilate. If you want to follow along in the passage today in Mark 15, beginning in verse 1, and just looking at the first five verses today. Mark 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes, that's the Sanhedrin, And the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. This is a very interesting passage uh, that continues all the way to verse 15. Um, Here, Jesus isn't in front of the religious establishment. He's standing before the political establishment. He's in front of the government, the state. And as followers of Jesus, we can learn a lot from the politics of Jesus as he interacts with the pagan, civil, secular, political authorities he's being forced to answer to. That's kind of the thought for today. Raises all kinds of questions for us as believers. What's the relationship between the church and the state? What's the relationship of Jesus' followers to politics? What's the relationship to Christianity to the government? We're going to look at this passage following... uh, the three questions Pilate asks in this passage and then the three answers that are given. Today we're only going to look at the first two questions. We'll look at the third question, which is a lot more involved, 
next time. The first question is followed by an ambiguous answer, and the second question is followed by an amazing answer. The first question, Pilate's first question to Jesus concerns the Sanhedrin's charge of high treason. Uh, High treason were crimes of insurrection, subversion. They were crimes against the state, not Jewish law. So Pilate asked Jesus in Mark 15, too, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you trying to usurp uh, Rome's authority? See, Pilate's not asking Jesus if he's the Messiah promised in the Hebrew scriptures. He could care less about that. All he wants to know is, do you consider yourself a king of the Jews? Pilate understands king of the Jews in political terms, in political implications, not religious ones. That's the Sanhedrin's strategy. Pilate's asking Jesus if he is in any way, shape, or form a political leader, political leader of his people. Will you, your movement have any political ramifications or intentions? Will you as a leader have any impact on the political powers, the ruling powers that exist by the state? Do you have any political pedigree or intention to subvert or overthrow the authorities? That's what he's asking him. That's all Pilate cares about. Now, I got to tell you this. When you consider the original Greek in, in Pilate's question, I think it's amazing because uh, you don't always pick it up in the English translations. Here's how, he, here's how Pilate asked Jesus this question. The word you is first. And it's asked rhetorically. You are the king of the Jews? And again, the English translations don't pick up the subtle ambiguity in Jesus' answer. In Mark 15, 2, Jesus literally says, you are saying it. (laughs) Did you catch this? You are the king of the Jews? You're the one saying it. It's crucial for us to see that Jesus is being deliberately ambiguous in how he answers. So what does Jesus mean? It's not a denial, but it's not really an affirmation. Or it's both a denial and an affirmation. It's intentionally ambiguous. You know, Jesus could have said, he knew what the question was about. Jesus could have said, no, 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 I don't claim that. I'm not a political leader at all. I'm a spiritual leader. What I'm doing won't have any impact on the politics or authorities around here. Or he could have said, yes, of course I'm a political leader, but I'm not going to interfere with Rome's politics. Could have said that. Avoided a whole lot of trouble. Jesus' answer to Pilate on whether or not he's a political leader of the Jews is yes, and no. That's how he answered. He left it wide open. Now, I say that to say, if we want to follow Jesus, 
It's absolutely crucial we stay on that fence. You cannot come off one side or the other. If you ask Buddha, are you a political leader? The answer is always going to be no. If you ask Mohammed, are you a political leader? The answer is always going to be yes. But if you say to Jesus, are you a political leader? The answer is always yes and no. If you remember, uh, this is really important for Jesus' followers to remember. This concept. He's giving us his political theory. I don't know what political theory you've adopted, but this is his. If you remember back in Mark 12, Jesus was ambiguous when it came to his relationship with the state in another case. Uh, tax evasion. <laughs> Our relationship to the state. In Mark 12, 13 to 17, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember that? His answer was yes and no. Render to Caesar, belongs to Caesar, and to God, what belongs to God. This, I'm telling you, is an unbelievable, striking, world-changing statement. On the one hand, pay your taxes. Jesus is not about withdrawing from the state. On the other hand, don't let any government make totalitarian claims over you. The state's authority is not absolute. When God's law and the state's law contradict, God's law always comes first. I got to tell you, uh, the more I read on this, this idea was revolutionary at the time. Absolutely earth-shattering. You need to keep in mind that all governments up to the time of Jesus here, all governments were totalitarian and claimed absolute power and allegiance of people under penalty of death. We see them in the world today. In all governments up to the time of Jesus, the temples and the state mutually supported each other. Governments always did things in the name of their gods. In fact, the emperor was king and was considered a god. <laughs> Absolute authority. If you remember, Tiberius declared himself to be so on every denarius. I think we showed you that. Here's what it says on that coin. Tiberius Augustus Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Son of God. In ancient times, this, this is why it's so uh, amazingly uh, world-changing. In ancient times, there was no concept of a limited state authority. It just didn't exist. There was no room for human rights, protests, and all the rest. In his answer about taxes, Jesus is the first thinker really to call for a limited state authority. We were made in God's image, and our ultimate allegiance belongs to him alone. Because of Jesus' ambiguous answer, the course of history was changed. You know, um, 
We remember those who've fallen this Memorial Day and free, and for our free, the freedom of our country. But you need to step back even more. Realize if it weren't for the Christians, we wouldn't even been able to do that in history. Because of Jesus' answer, the course of history was changed as the church began to call into question the totalitarian claims of the government. Not too long ago, the church who resisted totalitarianism on the political left against communism in Eastern Europe. It was the church who resisted totalitarianism on the political right against Nazism. Why did they resist, protest, do civil disobedience? Because God was their higher authority, (laughs) not the state. You know, Jesus had political extremes in his day, too. Uh, The Essenes uh, withdrew Jewish uh, holy men. They withdrew. They lived down by the Dead Sea in their own community. Off the grid. They didn't pay taxes. They didn't get involved. They just wanted to come out and be holy. That was it. The zealots, on the other hand, were Jewish people who wanted to take power. They wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to rule in God's name. But when it comes to political power... Jesus is ambiguous. On the one hand, he wants his followers to resist totalitarianism. On the other hand, he doesn't want his followers to put our hopes in political power. That's not how you bring in the kingdom of God. He doesn't want us to withdraw, and he doesn't want us to take power, thinking we're going to make our country more Christian. But there is a strategy that he had in mind. But we need to understand Jesus' answer to Pilate's first question. You are the king of the Jews? You're saying it is yes and no. If that's the case, then um, how do how are Christians supposed to change the culture if we don't take power or withdraw from it? That brings us to Pilate's second question and Jesus' amazing answer. When Pilate hears Jesus basically not commit one way or another, uh, his ambiguous answer, he's really surprised, perplexed, and it leads him to ask the next question. The chief priests in verses 3 and 4 are accusing him harshly. They are bringing charges of high treason against him. He's trying to overthrow the government. Pilate asked him, do you make no answer? See how many charges they're bringing against you? Pilate is absolutely perplexed as to why Jesus doesn't defend himself. It's almost like he's saying, aren't you going to answer? They're railroading you. Say something. Aren't you going to fight back? What's your counter strategy? He didn't say anything. You see... 
what Pilate's confused about, he's a man of the world in a political system that would not tolerate unfounded charges. They're lying. It's fake. It's <laughs> he wouldn't, they wouldn't tolerate it. And Pilate's trying to figure out what on earth Jesus is going to do about this. What's he going to do next? Jesus' amazing answer to Pilate's second question is silence. Jesus made no reply and says Pilate was amazed. The word amazed here is an amazing word. It's a, it's a positive word, actually. Pilate wasn't amazed thinking Jesus was an idiot. Pilate was marveling at Jesus' calmness in the face of these serious high treason charges. And I believe one reason he's amazed is Pilate saw the huge contrast between Jesus and his enemies. On the one hand, his enemies are frantically trying to put him in the worst position possible uh, and uh, thinking maybe, oh, I hope he doesn't get off. Jesus is perfectly calm. On the other hand, Jesus' enemies are using their power to harm him, but Jesus is laying down his power to forgive them. This is pretty astounding, actually, because every other political revolution usually happens like this. You take power away and then destroy or exclude your enemies. (laughs) Jesus turns it upside down. Jesus is willing to give up his power in order to serve others rather than take power and save himself. There's a concept. In his silence, you see, Jesus is laying down his power. He was showing his disciples and all who were there his political theory. He already taught them. He was just demonstrating it. You know what he said in Mark 10, 42 to 45? Calling the disciples, he said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know this is a, it's always been a very difficult principle for any Christian to really live out. We don't like that. We'd rather have the power. <laughs> and you got to listen to this though. In the first two cents, how on earth does Christianity explode across the world? That's how. Why is it now waning in its influence in our country, especially? Why? We're doing just the opposite. In the first two centuries after Jesus died and rose again from the dead, Jesus' followers took his message of service and his example into Roman society with a new personal peace and a new attitude to serve others. You can read about it starting in the book of Acts. And as a result, they changed the social order of the day. Dramatically. 
It cost them, but they changed it. People flocked to Christianity because how they loved and served. People flocked to Christianity because Christians rejected the things that the pagan culture took for granted. Things like infanticide, or the inferiority of women, or spurning of widows, or the principle, you come first. Save your own skin at all costs. They rejected that. The early Christians dug in deep with Jesus' teaching and example, valuing the dignity and humanity of people, and it changed the social order. Like I said, it's it's lost kind of its sense in our country. Um, I've watched it over the years. Um... For a great book on this, uh, may I recommend Rodney Stark's excellent book, The Rise of Christianity. I'm going to give you one thing I found in there. You see, the early Christians helped the poor and the sick. Not just the Christian poor and sick, the pagan poor and sick. I want you to listen to uh, this quote. I think it's on the slide. Yeah. Roman Emperor Julian, in 362, wrote a letter to the pagan high priest of Galatia. Here's what he said. The pagans need to equal the virtues of the Christians because their explosive growth was caused by their moral character. Even if it was pretended, when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, the Christians devoted themselves to benevolence not only to their poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. He's admitting Christianity is exploding because of their love and service of others. Even our pagan people. And Julian was alarmed. Because the pagan population was in decline, the Christian population was exploding. He attributed it to the fact that Christians were being more generous, hospitable, benevolent than the pagans. (laughs) They serve everybody with the same kindness, regardless of whether they're pagan or not, or Democrat or Republican. Same kindness. The pagan population began to see Jesus ministering to them through the Christians, and they came to believe in him as their savior, and they changed society. That's why Christianity is here today. The lives of these men and women, these Christian men and women, took Jesus' message and teaching to heart. They didn't overthrow the government. They undermined it with love and kindness and convinced people Jesus is who you need. So in Jesus' brief interchange with Pilate, he shows us how his followers can be change agents and powerful influences in society, not by withdrawing, not by force, but by giving up power in order to serve with the love of Christ. History has shown him to be correct. 
And when that's missing in the lives of Christians and the church, the church and Christianity will be in decline. Extremely important to catch this. Jesus gave up all his power and authority so he could save you. And he did that by dying on the cross for our sins. And now anyone who believes in him as their Savior receives God's free gift of salvation, just as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In Mark 15, Jesus is accused, arrested, convicted, brought before Pontius Pilate, and put on trial for his life. Is Jesus a political leader? Yes and no. The one beautiful thing about the Christian faith is its ambiguity concerning cultural hot buttons. It's counterintuitive way of life. It's paradoxical nature. I think we can learn a few things from early Christians in our own hot-button issues. Serving, loving, uh, taking. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. He said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. In us, ourselves, as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. There it is. Political theory. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how you change the world. When it comes to politics... Jesus did not give us a clear answer, but he did give us a rich answer. We are to be engaged, but not to the extent we think political power or government is our salvation. Only he is. We are called to resist totalitarianism and injustice. We are to never pick up our own sword to bring in the kingdom of God. We are to love others just as Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you again for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him to save us and uh, that he received what we deserved, taking the just penalty for our sins in him, on himself. Thank you that uh, through him we, you might give us forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life when we believe in him. Thank you, Lord, for those gifts. Help us to be grateful and live uh, the rest of our lives in grateful service to him who saved us. Help us to live as servants for Jesus' sake like Paul did. May others see him in us and be drawn to faith in Jesus. Lord, we ask you to do this. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.